Hello, and welcome to the Fincher Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and today on the podcast, we will be breaking the first rule of Fight Club by talking about Fight Club, David Fincher's 1999 thriller. Joining me are my partners in Project Mayhem, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. How's it going, guys? It's going well. It's uh, another week in quarantine and another week that I'm still alive and kicking and watching Fincher films. So, what? yeah, no, it's, it's good. It's um, it was nice to get outside a lot this week when the weather had cooled down a little bit because it had been pretty up, hot up here in Boston. I'm sure it's hot down there in Chattanooga as well, if not hotter. But uh, yeah, no, so far so good. I'd call it a good week, all things considered, for quarantine. Yeah, I'm okay. Um, it was it was an interesting time to watch this very, uh, to put it simply, anti-capitalist film while. <laughs> you know, simultaneously looking for a new apartment uh, and possibly a new job. So, you know, I definitely had some feelings while watching this yeah. movie. It, it's amazing how uh, how topical movies can suddenly become. Like last night I was watching, I watched The Firm yesterday afternoon, um, which features a very notable supporting performance by Wilford Brimley. And then as I was going to bed last night, I started refreshing Twitter. It turns out Wilford Brimley passed away last night. So you just, you never know the, how things are going to line up like that. It, it, it can be uh, kind of kind of strange sometimes. But um, yeah, you know, we should address the elephant in the room, I guess, which if we don't make any references in this episode to The Game, which of course is Fincher's second, uh, the second movie that we were going to do for the podcast, uh, the third, his third film, uh, it's because we had a little bit of a brain fart. I, well, I'll take responsibility. It was my fault. Um, and we skipped over it to, to do this episode. So we, we really wanted about, to talk about Fight Club. Yeah, well, we, we will be going, uh, we will be reviewing it. And, you know, if you listen to these in order, you won't even know because we're going to release the game before. But uh, in case you're wondering why we're not referencing the game, like maybe we would reference a previous film. Uh, that's why. But honestly, I don't feel too bad because the uh, the premier director filmography podcast, which is uh, which is blank check, they do this all the time. They'll talk about how they recorded, like when they were doing Christopher Nolan, they recorded Insomnia before they recorded Memento. Now, not because they forgot about a movie, but still, um, I don't think there's any shame in, in recording these out of order. I think it'll all sound cohesive in the end. But yep. yeah, anyway, I'm doing good. Finish the bar exam. Um, so that load is off of my shoulders. Um, I guess, assuming I don't have COVID, I don't think I do, but you know, I guess I could have it without knowing that I do. Um, but, uh, we'll be going on vacation, uh, next weekend. So, uh, looking forward to that. The, the dog days of summer are behind me, uh, which is, which is certainly a good thing, but, uh, yeah, guys, now that the rules have already been broken, we, uh, I guess we might as well go ahead and dive into our discussion of Fight Club. David Fincher's fourth film is an adaptation of the novel by Chuck Palahniuk, and it tells the story of a nameless loner played by Edward Norton, who is desperately in search of a purpose to his life. He seems to find one when he be becomes addicted to attending emotional support groups, which fill some sort of a void in his life. But his life is soon upended when he meets the aggressive antisocial Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt. The narrator finds himself drawn in by Tyler and their new friendship, leads to them establishing a series of underground fight clubs, which begin to grow in popularity, eventually spiraling into something larger and more catastrophic than the narrator could have ever imagined. Guys, Fight Club is an arresting and intense experience. And before we get to our thoughts after this watch, I'd love to hear about your first time seeing the film. Jay, we'll start with you. 
I had to really rack my brain to think about the first time I saw this movie. I think it was maybe 10 years ago. I'm, I think I was going through this phase of, I, I mean, this will come as no surprise to you, but I hadn't seen a lot of classic films. Um, and I was, you know, working through a list someone had given me. So, you know, I don't know. I, I must have been somewhere between like 14 and 15. So it, it had been a minute. Um, I remember thinking it was like, you know, a pretty good movie. Like, you know, like, oh, I, I, I get the hype behind it. You know, I was like a 14, 15 year old boy. Yeah. Scott, how about you? Yeah, I, I think this might be a theme with every every movie we watch from David Fincher is that I have to really rack my brain to think about the last time I saw it because I haven't watched any Fincher movie movies recently. That was true for, you know, the first episode we did with Seven. It's true for this one as well. It's been a really long time since I've seen this film. It probably was a similar age that Jay's talking about here when I first saw it. And to I mean, <laughs> it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to understand how whatever you when like if you watch this film when you're 14 or 15 you are not going to have like doesn't even matter like time like take take out the context of the current day and age of 2020 like the movie is just going to hit different i think when you're 14 or 15 versus when you're 25 and so i didn't really have much i i I basically i would say i almost didn't have any expectations positive or negative going in because i know what the film is and i know that it was going to be a very different experience the second time around and i just really didn't know what to expect of that experience, especially, you know, if you want to add back in the context, everything that's going on. I mean, there was plenty of comparisons uh, last year to the film Joker, which came out. And uh, there was a lot of comparisons about how that film is, you know, basically the fight club of, you know, 2019. And I will say I'll save my judgment on, on whether that is a fair comparison or not and what my thoughts are on that for later on in the episode. But uh, I think that was probably in my mind going into it more so than anything and wondering how similar I thought the experience was going to be to Joker because if you listen to the podcast, you know, I've, I've seen Joker twice. I didn't like it either time. Um, I, I really don't get the hype around the message of Joker. Um, I understand maybe the, the components of it being very well crafted, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't understand the hype around, around the, the thematic nature of and story around Joker. And so I was curious how, how that experience would compare. So that was mainly what I was thinking about going into this one. Yeah. Uh, I am kind of in the same boat as you guys. I, I think I mentioned last time with Seven that um, I has watched this for the first, watched Seven for the first time. Like a, it was like a TNT movie back in the day. You know, when I watched watched and recorded a lot of movies off of TV. I definitely think Fight Club is one of those movies. Um, again, probably watched it when I was in high school on on TV one time on cable. Um, and yeah, I think I I enjoyed it at the time. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I, I out of it, if you watched it, like, like with seven, probably had a lot of things cut out of it. Yeah, it probably did. Um, but I think that it has always, it has been in my head, like this whole time of the ones that I've seen my least favorite David Fincher film, not again, not because I thought it was like bad or I didn't like it that much, but just because like, there's a reason I haven't gone back and watched it, um, you know, a single time since I saw it all those years ago. Whereas a lot of the other movies, you know, even Panic Room, I've watched multiple times. Um, and so I, I think that it just didn't sit with me uh, in terms of like wanting to go back and rewatch it, um, like a, a, most of Fincher's other movies have. And so for that reason, it sat sort of the lowest on the totem pole. But this was probably, you know, maybe the one of all the rewatches that I'm going to do. Um, that I was most interested to see how I would reevaluate it because it had been so long. So without further ado, guys, let's uh, let's get to it. Jay, what are your thoughts on Fight Club after this watch? Eh. <laughs> um, 
I, th- I think that just about sums it up. And just to elaborate a little bit, I mean, I watched it and I don't know, like, I, I don't, I don't think this movie necessarily has that much re- rewatch value, at least to me. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the themes, you know, still like resonate today, which was, you know, I guess kind of a cool, you know, comparison to make between, you know, back when this movie came out and now, but I don't know, ultimately, like, I don't know, the, the movie, it's just, you know, it, it just doesn't do it for me, I guess, in the way that, you know, I wouldn't even say necessarily did when I was 14, 15. I think back then I kind of got it a little more. And, you know, I, I think I still do see the appeal, but I mean, I think I'm even more removed from that, from feeling that way now. Um, you know, I, I, again, I think, and I think, you know, to maybe draw a few comparisons to Joker, uh, like, you know, you might, Scott, like, I, I think the, there are some really good performances in this movie. Um, I just don't necessarily think I, I, you know, once the movie ends, I'm kind of, I was just sitting there like, why, why, why did I watch this? Why was this made? That's, that's kind of where I landed with it. Yeah. I mean, well, let's rip the bandaid off about what I was saying, how it compares to Joker. I think Fight Club is, can be easily be compared to Joker. I mean, I really think that Jay is spot on with the performances. I think, I mean, you, I think you could even argue that some of these performances, at least in the case of Brad Pitt, might even be better than Joaquin Phoenix. In my opinion, I think Brad Pitt's like really, really good in this film. And Ed Norton, I think I've just seen too many Ed Norton films. It feels like he does the same thing in every film. He has like the same mannerisms and stuff. But I mean, that's maybe inevitable. He's still a good actor. Uh, so the performances there are good. It, it good. The performance there is good. I think that you know everything that's like the message of the film. Like I don't even know what David Fincher is even trying to say. Like I know it's a satire and a critique of a lot of different things. But like I don't know. It just kind of reminded me of. Hamilton like what are you gonna like like if you're gonna if you're against everything like what are you standing for like he's against consumerism but it's also against this like nature of toxic masculinity and and like the opposite like it, it's like both being against consumerism and also against this sort of like antisocial um you know anti-consumers behavior I'm just like really scratching my head at the end of it I don't really know what the point of the film is and I mean the ending is horrible like I don't even understand the last five minutes of the movie I don't. I, it's just like I can't. I can't even fathom what the what the point of the the ending was, really. Um, if not just the conclusion of this like horrible spiral, and maybe a maybe it's a condemnation of everything that the, that has come before it in the film. I don't know. But overall, it's just it was just this really like negative experience. Honestly, like I, I don't even. Like, Jay was talking about like I don't even know why this movie was made. I mean, I don't really know why this movie's made either. I mean, Joker made a billion dollars. I understand why that movie got made, but like, why did this movie get made? It didn't even make that much money. Um, I mean, it's a cult classic now, but it's uh, it's a really interesting film for what it's what it wants, maybe what it wants to say. But like Joker, I don't actually sure it said very much. And yeah, it's uh, the comparisons that people might make around Joker being a more modern day Fight Club. I mean. To me, feels right. They they may mean that as a positive thing, but to me, feels feels the same thing away about Joker too. Is that yeah? I'm not really sure what this film is saying, uh, even with some good performances. And I do think it's good directing by David Fincher. I just think the story isn't saying anything is the problem. I think you know the problem. I mean, you can I I don't want to just talk about Joker for an entire hour, but like Todd Phillips helped like write Joker. Like it's his story that he created that he thinks it's like the the gif or whatever of I forget who it is but he's like shooting a three and like turns around and walks away and like holding up the three sign swaggy like, yeah swaggy Nick B. Young, of course yeah, yeah Nick Young and he, he's like thinks he's made it and like that's how I picture like Todd Phillips when he like finishes the script of Joker he's like he thinks he's like sunk a three but he's just so, so off like Fincher didn't write the script on this he didn't have any thought and I think he directed it really well and you get a lot of flavor and a lot of atmosphere like you also get in Joker but I just don't think the story is there at all I just don't know 
what the what I just don't know what it's trying to say. And maybe I just need to watch it again. Right. Need to watch it a third a third time to understand it. I, I don't think that's going to help. But I just don't understand uh, a lot of what this movie is trying to say, because it just seems like it seems to be against everything. Yeah, please cite uh, Demi Adiju eBay for that uh, Swaggy P thing. I think he was the first one to do that. I can't. I, I can't remember which uh, which movie it was in. Uh, I don't remember either, but I did. I did see it. In there, connection yeah. to yeah, but he he posted that gif or whatever. But um, yeah. I mean, I'm gonna say something that I haven't said really on the countdown series since Star Wars, which is. I don't really enjoy this movie. Um, I, I don't. Yeah. I didn't get much out of the experience either. I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you guys. Um, and like, look, going into it, I think I was prepared to like enjoy the movie because like this feels like a movie that people talk like the the discourse surrounding this movie nowadays is like it's so like toxic or like you know it's toxic masculinity and all of this stuff. Um, almost like in the same way that people talk about some Tarantino movies, but it's like they talk about them on such a surface level without understanding what the movies are, are really about. And I was, so I was ready for this to be like, for this experience to be like, Hey, yeah, like he's actually critiquing all of this stuff. Like people just want to see what they want to see when they watch this movie. And that's why there's all of this discourse about how it's toxic and all of this stuff. But yeah, I mean, like, he is critiquing it like that's very clear if you look at the narrator's arc over the course of the movie like he's not um necessarily uh, glamorizing this lifestyle but it kind of does feel like that at times right like i think you know you talk about how when you watch this movie as a teenager you have a different experience than when you watch it now like i think when you watch it as a teenager, there is something almost glamorous, uh, maybe about the the fight club lifestyle that they are running yeah. in their antisocial behavior and everything. Obviously, it goes off the deep end in the end. But sure. still, I, I think that, um, you know, that is why maybe it has been targeted by a lot of critics as being sort of toxic, because even though that's not what the message of the movie is, you could easily get sucked into believing that it is, especially when you're younger and more impressionable, I think. And you know, it like he said, Scott, it doesn't really help that he doesn't seem to come down. Like, I don't know. I don't know what he's trying to say at the end of the movie. Like, I don't know what he wants us to do about anything. Like, it's obvious that, like, he has, you know, attitudes about certain things or Chuck Palahniuk um, had certain, uh, you know, attitudes about capitalism and consumerism, toxic masculinity and all of this stuff and that he's against all of this stuff. But what are we supposed to do then? Like, what what lifestyle are we supposed to embrace? How are we supposed to combat this, you know, consumerist capitalist society, if not through these, you know, underground fight clubs. I mean, obviously, that's not the method that he suggests uh, is the best way to fight this system. But he doesn't really give us any idea of how, how you know, how can you fight this system? Um, you know, other than by metaphorically blowing your own brains out, I guess. But um, I, I don't know. Yeah, th this movie did not do do much for me. I think it is an example of a disturbing film, unlike Seven, that doesn't have much to say and therefore doesn't really have much to offer in the same way that Joker was. Like, I think it probably thinks it's it's saying a lot. Um, but in the end, I think it's a, you know, it, it it's a pretty well, the, the film is just like, look at all these problems with society I've uncovered. I'm like, cool. You uncovered <laughs> and some I, problems I mean, and, and like, you know, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but like the you know, Edward Norton's character is basically like, I am against society now at the end of the movie. Like that is his, 
that is like the big revelation that he has. But it, I, I don't know. Again, so much of the movie is spent on him. Like again, it, it all sort of glamorizing this lifestyle. You know, he gets involved with the fight clubs. He's going to these support groups. Blah 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 blah. blah. It just feels like the shift that happens in his character um, at the end of the movie of like, oh, actually, all this stuff is bad. It's just like okay, but like that number one, that's not like a startling revelation. And, and number two, like, I don't feel like that ends up being the takeaway that it should be from the movie when so much time is spent on this other stuff. So yeah, it, it doesn't work for me, but um, yeah. So I interesting again, that this is one of the first movies in quite a while, uh, I guess, since the rise of Skywalker, probably for our, for our series here that um, not we, uh, part of the countdown though. You can, sure. You're um, sure. Maybe going I mean, back following, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, following, I didn't think like it was just, it was fine to me. Like I didn't not enjoy it. Um, sure. This, I mean, I didn't enjoy it. I won't watch it again anytime soon. Um, but the good news is for us, for our purposes is this is an anomaly in Fincher's filmography. I think the rest of the movies, I mean, of the ones that I've seen, um, which is most of them are, are going to be really good, but you know, interesting to to probe our thoughts, I guess, uh, on a film that we are a little bit more negative on. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess we can move on now to talk about the cast in this movie. Obviously, you know, this isn't the second straight movie to feature Brad Pitt, but it's the second <laughs> straight one that we are talking about. So to feature Brad Pitt um, playing in some ways a similar, in some ways of a different character, I think, from Seven. I think maybe it, it might be interesting to kind of draw comparisons between the characters, but, you know, playing Tyler Durden, who has become sort of an iconic film character. Now you hear that name, you know who he is, even if you've never seen Fight Club. And he's sort of this, you know, kind of, he's, he's the Joker character of this movie in a way, right? He's sort of this charismatic, like weirdly charismatic cult leader, like by the end of the movie, um, who is inspiring all of these people to sort of rise up against society, kind of in the way that um, we see Joker doing at the end of Joker. But, um, I don't want to talk. I feel about like I feel Joker. like Ed Norton's character is more like the Joker. I mean, Tyler Durden has like a mission and a plan, and is very. It seems very measured. I don't know. I don't. We don't have to jump into this. Depends which Joker we're talking about, but yeah, let's maybe. yeah, let's pull away. I assume we're talking about the one from last year, but sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I mean, that, that's what I meant. I just, I just meant to say that, like, you know, by the end of the movie, he, he, these all these people are sort of rallying around him and his movement, whatever it may be, in the way that. You know, we see at the end of the joke at the end of 2019's Joker. Um, but, but the funny, the funny part of that is, sorry, I, I don't know, is that like it, I feel like it, they're really there because in reality they're really rallying around Ed Norton's character, who is like just as like hapless as as Joker is, as Arthur Fleck is in in the movie last year, and he's just like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I got a lot of followers now. Look at that. And then at the end of the movie, he's just like, Cool, I got a lot of followers, and I'm not going to stop this, so might as well enjoy it. It's very, very strange comparisons to the last scene in joker too maybe okay you win um all right uh but as far as brad pitt goes um what did you guys think of his performance here as tyler Durden? Uh, i guess he's not the joker but uh, in terms of what his role is in this movie what what did you think jay phenomenal um i i you know i'm watching this movie in the context of the countdown we're doing right and honestly i was enjoying his performance so much that in my head i was like maybe i should do a brad pitt filmography viewing Good you know, when this is over you know i mean yeah it's gonna be a, it's, it, it would be a lot so probably not but yeah i mean you know second straight movie of his you know in this countdown and again like i i actually like really enjoyed his performance 
uh, in this movie. You know, like he, he you know, when, when he uh, is telling Ed Norton's character, you know, like how, you know, he's the same, like I'm everything that you wish you were. I talk like you want to talk. I make love like you want to make love, et cetera. Like, you know, he, uh, again, especially for, you know, like that 14 year old boy or whatever, you know, like he very much like is like the embodiment of like all that. Like it was, it, you know, it, it's super believable and like, it's awesome. I, I really enjoyed his performance in this movie. Yeah, it's it's uncomfortably capturing like like the hyper alpha male ness of it all, and he does it so well though, you know. Well, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, it perfectly captures it, and it feels like everything, like the like your like your worst tendencies, right? That like like the little devil on your shoulder wants wants you to be, right? And the person who can say, "Oh, no one else matters. Screw it. I'm." I'm the boss here basically. And, and I think that it, he captures it perfectly well, disturbingly. So I think, and that's why I think it it is like such a great per- performance. Cause I think that, I don't know, like he, he it's impossible not to compare it to Joker. Maybe I'm just going to shut that down. I'm not going to compare it to Joker anymore. Throwing it out. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic performance. I, I think that he like really overshadows Ed Norton in this movie. Um, quite, quite a bit, actually. I think, he, I mean, he overshadows just about everyone. But it's really just him and Ed Norton, I think, really for most of the movie. But yeah, I, I think he's really strong. He's like the charisma that that this t- character of Tyler Durden has. Like I don't know, like that is Brad Pitt, right? Like he almost it almost feels like a precursor to playing, you know, his character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like it feels like, you know, if you told me that that character's name was Tyler was like Tyler with somewhat different last name, I'd be like, hmm, I see what you're alluding to there, because like it really does feel like that character once upon a time all it has a lot of toxic masculinity in him as well. And, uh, he takes it out in different situations. Um, maybe you could say some of those are more justified than like the extreme nature of what this character is doing here. But I think there are a lot of, a lot of similarities in, uh, in that. And I think it speaks to like, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood is a performance that won him an Oscar. And I think that, you know, the fact that this performance did even get nominated, I don't think it did. Right. I don't think, I don't think so. so no. Yeah, yeah. I think it only got nominated for best sound editing or something like that. But um, I think it's like just as good a performance as um, Cliff Booth in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I can't can't praise it more highly than that because I think that one of the things that is maybe I mean I don't know I found Cliff Booth to be a pretty disturbing character to be honest in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I find this character to be even more disturbing and, and rightfully so. I mean it's supposed to be, and this whole notion of uh, you know, having this this really sharp back and forth between the characters and Ed Norton, like it always feels like Tyler is the one in control of those conversations. Like he's asserting his dominance in almost every scenario. Uh, you can't even imagine this. I mean, there's not a scene where he isn't asserting his dominance, even in the ones where, you know, they, he just meets him for the first time on the plane. Like it just feels like he's a step ahead uh, of everyone. And Brad Pitt plays that extremely well, very believably so. And, you know, when that big reveal comes at the end, when the pieces of the puzzle are, are you know, put together, so to speak, you know, you may have beaten Ed Norton to the punch there, um, but I think overall it's very believable, right? And I think and it's it's just set up really well, and I and I can't really speak more highly of this performance than I am. I think it's a I think it's a better performance than he did in Seven. Interesting, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of in two minds about this performance, to be honest with you. Like, I personally don't find that much seductive or like charismatic about this character like i kept waiting because i knew that's what i was supposed to be feeling right like like you said jay this character what this character represents is like um he's supposed to be like the ideal of the edward norton character like this is the guy that he wishes he could be you know that he is betting helena bottom carter's character he's you know taking all of these risks he's saying stuff that edward norton wants to say but won't actually say um and like 
I like you know you're comparing it to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Scott. Like I think like yes, they, there are some comparison points there. As you said, they're both disturbing characters, but there's something charming about Cliff Booth, right? Like, which I think it, I was definitely more 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 captivated by receptive to um, than I was to his character here. Like I you know I just kind of saw this guy as um, you know again aggressive, toxic, um, just all kinds of bad tendencies, not someone that anyone should aspire to be um right but like again maybe it's just the tones of the movies right because that's played for Probably. laughs almost in once upon a time in hollywood but um but i i just I, and and again i think the flip side of that is maybe that's the point right because in the end we're not supposed to like think that this guy is a good guy or be drawn in by him but i don't know but i think for the movie to work to some extent we have to understand we have to believe that not only Edward Norton, right, but all of these other characters would get drawn in by Tyler Durden, by, you know, that he, he would be able to attract all of these people, not just to the fight clubs, but then to his own sort of revolution, basically, by the end. They're basically committing terrorist acts at the end of the movie. Um, and I didn't get the sense, like, I didn't see him as like a Jim Jones, like charismatic type figure again, where he could uh, inspire like, like I just didn't get why he had inspired so many people. Um, but then, philosophy, right? I mean, that's, that's what the, I mean, that's what they want you to think, right? It's, it's maybe even yeah. less him and more his philosophy. Yeah. And, and maybe this is just, uh, again, uh, the fact that we're older now, we'd like to think that maybe we're much more mature, wiser, um, and so we kind of see this character as we're meant to see him at the end of the movie, right? Of, of that he is somebody who needs to be killed, expunged, right? Like um, Edward Norton physically like shoots him out of his life. Um, and uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, I can't decide, I guess, whether I think that the performance worked for what it was going for or not. But I, I don't think I'm as positive as you guys on it. I, I do think I liked the seven performance more, but I, also think that the the fact that there was a stronger movie around it probably you know plays into why I feel that way but um let's talk about Edward Norton now who obviously is the foil in some extent for this character uh to some extent for for Tyler Durden um he is this nameless loner I guess the idea is that there are a lot of people like him that he could be uh, a lot of you know he is the everyman angry white males and America at this time, um, a lot of, you know, angry Gen Xers, obviously this is like, this is the Gen Xer Joker, I guess, if, if we're going to make that comparison, but, um, I, I think that, uh, he, yeah, Scott, maybe like you said, he's played a similar type of role to this, like American history X was just the year before this movie, I think maybe a good comparison point, but, um, what did you guys think of his role here as the opposite of Tyler Durden as this guy who, um, is looking for some purpose in his life. And uh, Tyler Durden and these fight clubs and everything provide that until he sort of has a come to Jesus moment in the last 30 minutes of the movie. Uh, Scott, we'll start with you this time. Yeah, I mean, some some worthwhile come to Jesus moment he has in the last 30 minutes of the movie when it is literally for is literally pointless in the last couple of minutes. But yeah, I, look, I think this performance is interesting i mean i'm much noted on this podcast for hating voiceover i don't like it in this film i don't i think the voiceover in this film is really annoying um when he's like narr like he's narrating to you a lot of stuff um 
I think that some of it is necessary, but I don't. I think that they, I mean, they kind of overdid it a little bit, in my opinion. And and part of that comes down to, I don't know. Maybe it's just like perception that I have of Ed Norton. I don't know. But like, look, he's he's oh, he's fine. He's like fine in the film. I think he's fine. Um, for me, I think he. And maybe this is what even what you're getting at with with Brad Pitt. I feel like you put the two performances together, and maybe you've gotten something like maybe you've gotten something more even than the some other parts. Uh, because they are really, I mean, they're, they are the full picture when you put them together. Like one is, you know, they're, they're, they're opposite ends of the spectrum. Like, and Ed Norton's narrator is this like really almost meek, um, person who takes life as it comes. And Brad Pitt is someone who's like, you know, F that I'm going to grab life by the horns and do whatever I want with it and be macho alpha male over here. And when you put those two together maybe you've got some interesting performance but they almost play their separate roles here and I, and I just think that um maybe even more so than than Tyler than Brad Pitt's Tyler Durden I, I almost feel like this um performance is one dimensional in that Ed Norton is like has to stay in his lane like so acutely and whereas I like Tyler Durden yes he's staying in his lane of being an alpha male but he's also just kind of like he, he is able to do a lot more because you don't really understand like you're not in the mind of Tyler Durden right like you're you're observing him more than he that more than you're just really in the head of Ed Norton's character and, and I just think being in the head of this character isn't very interesting right and maybe that's maybe that's the ultimate reality of it, is that like I, this character kind of like I mean again to me I said I was gonna make the comparison Joker but like just like I think Arthur, Arthur Fleck is like not an interesting character Ed Norton's narrator is not an interesting character like it's like it's troubling that he has these mental you know these mental um health problems but what he's doing with that isn't interesting like how the movie is addressing that like i mean i'd argue it just doesn't address it by the end of the film right it says like he had like here are these problems like he's having like he's experiencing some sort of like emasculating depression around like his ability to like feel things and so he exploits like emotional support groups and then he exploits like you know essentially cockfighting in basements with but like against humans and he's exploiting all these things to feel things like that's not interesting that's not an interesting way to deal with your problems for me and it doesn't ever explore them because even with his come to jesus moment at the end of the film like he's not a good person at the end of the film either like he's still not doing anything meaningful. Like, yes, he's gotten rid of Tyler Durden out of his mind, but then he's like holding the hand of this girl who he's like emotionally manipulated and abused, like for most of the film. And they're just like watching like every major building in the city, like be destroyed. And I'm just like, what, like, what is this? Like, I don't even know. Like you didn't want this. Like you just spent like the last 10 minutes of the film trying to stop this. And then you're just like, yeah, screw it. We're going to enjoy it. Um, which is like, I mean, I guess that's what you do in that moment when there's nothing else you can do, but just nothing about this character is like, is interesting, honestly, to me. And, and I don't, and uh, that's unfortunate for Ed Norton, because I think that his performance is fine, but I honestly just don't think he has much to work with here. Jay, how about you? Go off, Scott. No, he, Scott said it. Um, no, it was great. Um, and I honestly, I, I, I agreed with pretty Are much everything. about my analysis of it? You're talking about Norton's performance. Your analysis of it was great. His performance, I mean, his performance was fine to me. Again, like I, I think you, you, you did tap into it at the end there where you said, yeah, he's really not given that much to do. Um, you know, the, the, no his personality, he doesn't do anything throughout the entire film. Yeah. And then like, you know, that's, that's not really Ed Norton's fault. 
Um, sure. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And yeah, because you know, I mean, I, I generally think you know he's a pretty good actor. You know, the, the role itself, you know, the character. You're right. It just isn't interesting, especially because you know you spend pretty much over what, like you know, eighty five percent of the movie, like you know, in the mind of this like meek, boring character, observing someone far more interesting go to work. Um, you know, with some confusing mental lapses thrown in the middle for confusion's sake and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's his character does what it's supposed to. It's not particularly interesting. You know, it might have been cooler to watch him hulk out at the end or something. But alas, uh, we don't we don't get that from Ed Norton this time. Shooting himself in the head wasn't good enough for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this performance is good, but I just hate the character. Like, I, I honestly do. I think which is what what y'all are are, you know, dancing around i i just think that there's nothing to connect to in either one of these uh main characters which like i think fincher wants you to see some of yourself in at least one if not both of these characters um at some point during the movie and i don't feel like i ever did like i i really did not like the first stretch of the movie right where he's going to all of the really the first time he talks about bob which is meatloaf's character and like the way that he's kind of like made fun of i was just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth and then you know but then like they try to make it come around by like oh then he starts going to these support groups and he actually does begin to feel things and he begins to start crying and doing all this stuff too but it's like so like satirical like tongue-in-cheek like you know, like winking yeah. at you almost that like you wonder, like it's, it's, it's oddly hard. played for laughs. Right. It, yeah. It's like, you wonder if like, am I actually supposed to like, think that this is like, yes, it is a good thing that he is starting to feel something and that he has sort of come around on this whole thing, but it doesn't feel like the movie wants you to think it's a good thing. Or it, again, the movie doesn't know how it wants you to feel about things, uh, except to be against a lot of things. Um, and so I think that I just didn't really care about the character or see myself in the, the character at any stage. And so there's only so much that, that Ed Norton can do. I mean, I think he is well cast as, you know, the, the loner who doesn't believe anything. I, I mean, again, that's where the Joker thing, like he doesn't really believe in very much. Like, I, I guess at the beginning of the movie, he is kind of like, very like pro consumerism, I guess, um, because you know there's all those scenes where he's, oh, he's describing like all of it. Yeah, he, he's describing all of those things. It reminded me of American Psycho a little bit, actually, the way that um, these sort of like um, really like boilerplate, like going on and on descriptions of like commercial products and stuff yeah. is like exactly American Psycho. But um, yeah, I just didn't feel like it 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 served much of a purpose because yeah, by the end of the movie, you're like okay, but what's he going to do now? Like, is he going to be a better person tomorrow? If so, how, right? Because he he's rejected Tyler Durden's lifestyle, but like the lifestyle he was living before Tyler Durden isn't something to be desired either. It's what made him right. create Tyler Durden. Yeah, it isn't something to be desired. It seems like, you know, unless the idea is like, yeah, he's going to be, he's more, you know, he realizes that getting in touch with his emotions is not a bad thing. And now he's going to be with Helena Bonham Carter's character and live happily ever after water. But I just don't think you get that from the movie. Um, well, I mean, also part of, part of it is too, is just that he is set up as this character who, you know, is like at the end of the middle, like, I don't know, like to your point is like, is he understanding that like being in touch with your emotions, is how you process things like, like, if so, it's really unclear. 
at the end of the film that he's doing that. And I don't really understand the point of, you know, he's, you know, he's like this drone at the beginning of the film who just like does everything that he's been told in life. Right. Like that's like essentially his character. Like he's bought these things out of the mag out of this like catalog because he's been told that's what he does. And like, that's a measure of, I feel like it's such an exaggerated view though, of like that type of lifestyle where like people don't actually go around like talking about again, like catalog level descriptions of like the, in the consumer 90s. goods inside their house yeah right and 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 maybe maybe in the 90s yeah but that's one of the overarching things i think about the movie that maybe i haven't said is that i just don't think this movie is that relevant or that it holds up very well um into into the modern era i think this film does feel dated when you watch it in in 2020 i think i think to an extent yeah i think the manifestation of what it's talking about is probably dated into you know like the late 90s or whatever but i do think that the experience uh, the, of some men feeling emasculated by the world yeah. around them and being and being felt and being frustrated by that you know you could say that it's like incel culture kind of thing right like i mean i mean I, like ed norton is like the 1999 like this character is a 1999 incel basically right like he's a gen x you know yeah, early it, 30s incel and and that part of it, I agree. I think more for me, it's like when we talk about like critiques of capitalism nowadays, it doesn't have anything to do with like consumer culture or anything like like it does in this movie. It's it's more about like structural like poverty mm, yeah. and uh, unemployment and stuff like that. That is like what critiques of how critiques of capitalism are framed nowadays and the whole like consumer cultures thing just feels like a very 90s like when people were like watching infomercials and like totally. you know again looking at catalogs and stuff like that which just isn't like now we just click on everything on amazon and like i just that that i feel like the middleman has kind of been cut out there in that whole thing does your mom still shop in catalogs scott does she shop with catalogs at all i don't think so yeah it's an interesting question. I wonder yeah. if it's still, I, mean, I wonder if other people would still find it relevant, like older people, people older than us in the Gen X. I don't know. Um, but I think we can move. Well, is there anything else you want to say about the supporting cast here? We have Meatloaf. We have um, Jared Leto shows up. Helena Bonham Carter obviously plays the the love interest here. Um, those are kind of the the major players, I guess. Anything that either of y'all want to say about any of these people in the movie? Scott, look me in the eyes and tell me. That, that Helen Bottom Carter's character is a good female character. Look me in the eye. Yes, I was, I was waiting for that. <laughs> nope. Yeah, bad character. <laughs> we can move on. Yeah, I think what we're learning from this podcast, and I was thinking about it after talking about Seven, is like female characters She's writing aren't that women. Great in movies. Yeah, like men aren't that great at writing women. And when you look very close, even at some of your favorite films, you might not find things that you're going to like in terms of how women are portrayed, but. I think we are making progress in that area, which is which is a good thing. But um, certainly saw that with Nolan, right? I mean, his last yeah, well, his last his, yeah, his last movie. He just didn't but, even bother. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, I mean, but in Interstellar, we I think we all agreed that that was a better. Portrayal. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely an improvement. Maybe he let Emma Thompson write write a character yeah. in that one. I will say, I think that Meatloaf's character should like is like the tragic hero of the movie, but like they just don't again because so much of it is like played for laughs because he has like the you know big breasts or whatever like it's just it's juvenile and like yeah i guess that's the point but like i think that they could have done more with that character because i think he is the only character in the movie that i ever really like felt that much for like at the beginning of the movie right when he's like crying and like hugging edward norton's character and edward norton is just like relentlessly mocking him i was like 
come on, dude. Um, but then obviously, you know, we see what happens to, to meatloaf in the end that like he, he goes full incel and gets killed. Um, and so I, I think that, um, there could have been something interesting there. Um, and that he could have been sort of the, the emotional centerpiece of the movie, but they just, they didn't, they weren't interested in that, unfortunately. Imagine that meatloaf as an emotional centerpiece. Yeah, he. I mean, I think he does does a good job with what he's, you know, what he has to work with here. But um, now I think we can move on to talk about, I guess, in a little more detail. We've we've talked a lot about some of them so far, but the themes of this movie, right? And I think the the two things that jump out obviously are sort of the the critique of consumerism, like we're talking about, the anti capitalist, um, you know, the idea that Tyler Durden is encouraging. Um, is encouraging the narrator to reject this part of himself, which is so concerned with, you know, consumer goods and um, his, you know, office-based job and lifestyle and, and everything like that. Um, so much so that he like burns his apartment down just for that, uh, you know, purpose. Um, but what, guys, what do you think about this um, critique? Does it still feel relevant or again kind of like i was talking about a few minutes ago does it feel more like a product of the 90s um is there anything in this anti-capitalist anti-consumerist commentary that is going on here that struck a chord with you jay i mean i i told you i'm uh apartment hunting this week and i don't know i, I had i definitely had a very angsty like 30 minutes in the middle of this movie as you know we're navigating this route of like rejecting consumerism and capitalism right i'm sitting there like do i you know do i really even need like this kind of apartment why don't i just go live yada yada and like you know find like i i know it's not exactly what the movie is like the movie's not like you know uh pushing financial like frugality but it you know definitely did it, it definitely did you know push me in the direction of like you know why do i feel like i need this kind of apartment or like why do you know do i feel like you know i need this in my next space and yada yada went in and of course, like, you know, I, I can, we could sit here, like, you know, talk for hours about like, you know, of, of course I have reasons for that with everything that's going on. I work from home and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it, 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 I will say that that part of it, you know, resonated with this very specific thing that is happening with me right now. I'm not sure that it necessarily would have happened in a normal situation, but, you know, for someone who, you know, is, uh, you know, to put it candidly, like feeling a little bit like, you know, financially strained uh, by this like apartment search is kind of like, huh, like, you know, why, why do we feel the need to, you know, like look for nice things? It was very, it was very like strange, you know, half hour of riding that roller coaster. Yeah. So I think for me, it, I think it is relevant to an extent. I think that being anti-consumerist or anti-materialist is st like still holds like nuanced at least is slightly different than being anti-capitalist like i don't know if this movie is anti-capitalist although i think those things are like relatively i mean they are linked in some ways mm -hmm. but this movie i think firmly takes a stance on being you know you know get rid of all your belongings right like like throw everything away none of that matters that's not going to that's not going to be what brings you happiness because if you just look at the movie on like a surface level there's this like empty happiness that the narrator has at the end of the film like He's successful. He has a decent job. Like he does a soulless job, but he has a job that enables him to buy these things that he's been told will make him happy. And that happiness is really empty. And it's not because of capitalism that it's empty. It's because it's the consumerism element of it, which again, they're interconnected, but I want to draw that out. And I think that so much of the attention around those conversations today is perfectly what you're kind of capturing here, Scott, is that 
like the bigger problem society has now is with capitalism as a structural institution, not like the consumerist, you know, byproduct of what capitalism is. And so it feels like the conversation of consumerism is not as relevant in society today. And so for that reason, might not be, you know, informative or, or be really meaningful in the film. But to Jay's point, I think when you're actually thinking about what the anti-consumerism message here, you're like, yeah, like I look around my apartment and like I like some of the things that I have, but I also like, why do I have some of the things that I have is the fact that I have, you know, I don't know, like a particular couch or, you know, a Lego set over here in the corner is like that. Is that really what's making me happy? And I think to some extent, yeah, like, like to a degree, that is something that, that makes me happy. But can I extend that out into perpetuity and live my life that way and be happy with it? And the answer is probably no to that. And I think that's what the, and I think that's what the film is trying to say from the consumerist perspective. Now, again, I'm not sure that that's like the most relevant conversation to be having within like the overarching theme of like capitalism and its byproducts today. But is it still, is it still, is it still impactful to a degree? Yes. Probably not to the same extent because it's not as relevant, but to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, again, I feel like when we're talking about like Amazon, for example, today, people are like, don't buy stuff on Amazon, but it's not because of like, you, you shouldn't buy fill your apartment with with meaningless. Right. Things. It's because Amazon treats their workers terrible or Jeff Bezos has all this money and won't, you know, donate it to charity or whatever. So like it, it, the, the like arguments and conversations around these ideas, I feel like have shifted in a way that makes this feel a little bit outdated. Like, honestly, yeah. I just feel like that American Psycho is the better version of this movie. And we don't have to go deep, deep down that that road. But I think that what it's saying about um consumerism or, or, you know, the capitalism and, and in particular and in violence and violence against women and stuff like that. I think it links them in a much smarter way than, uh, than this movie does. And you know what? American Psycho is directed by a woman. So that may have something to do with it. Um, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll hate on Fincher a little bit, even though I think that he does direct the film like, well, again, it's, it's a very watchable, like, film like I, I never felt like bored or unengaged by it despite the fact that there were you know despicable characters really at the at the heart of this thing and but because i think because of the style that he like the undeniable style that he brings to the filmmaking here um keeps it you know watchable but um yeah this this is not one of his his standouts but talking more about the other major idea i think here which is you know toxic masculinity and critiquing yeah you, know, you talk about scott like the emasculation that is occurring a little bit in um edward norton's character and i think that the meatloaf character is sort of the obvious like example of that right of of literally he's so emasculated because he's so in touch with his emotions that he now has these feminine appendages like you know coming growing out of him um and and so, so that like is very, very, a very on the nose example, I guess, of where um, this movie is sort of reckoning with uh, this idea that, hey, emotion is equivalent to femininity. And, you know, there's a whole generation of, of men who are, you know, rejecting this and they want to get back to their, um, you know, they want to embrace masculinity. Hunter gatherer roots. It's like literally yeah. what Brad Pitt says. So, so much so that they are like literally beating each other to a pulp. And that is what like revitalizes them. I I think that feel things. I think if there's one element of the critique that semi works, maybe this is it. But again, I think it is a little like on the nose of like the the fact that it is literally fight clubs, right? That it is literally people beating each other to a pulp. That is what 
brings them all back together just feels a little too like you know hammering the point but uh scott what about what do you think about the gender dynamics going on in the movie the gender dynamics i mean i don't yeah i i don't know much about like what it says about female characters because i mean i mean at least on screen like there's no violence against women in this movie i mean i guess i'll give it credit for that there's no there's nothing nothing really in terms that. of like the idea that like a, emotion is feminine and all of this stuff which i think is definitely sure. within the film yeah but i don't know if that's Yes, I don't think that's a that I guess I don't read that as a critique of like any sort of critique against women or anything like that. But the emasculating nature of it, yeah, sure. No, I think I think it's interesting. Like, look, I'll go back to something what I said at the beginning. Like, this movie, I or this script, what however you want to talk about the book, however you want to frame it, it identifies that there is a problem of toxic masculinity. But like, what do you do with it? Because I think we can all agree that this extreme example of like getting yourself back in touch with your emotions by giving yourself something to feel by getting the absolute crap beaten out of you every night is like not uh not a solution to being emasculated right like the, like just wailing on other men is not going to be a way for you to like become a reformed member of society and like be in touch with your emotions and be able to function normally i mean if anything the movie says the opposite right like it says that like this is a way to feel again but you're going to consent essentially become an outcast of society and become a terrorist right like that's like that's the ultimate destination of that path and so it's this really weird thing that i think it identifies a problem it doesn't really tell you how to do that, right? Like it gives you three different examples or whatever of how to deal with that. It's one is to like exploit emotional support groups um, for like the emotional support that they lend to people who need it for X, Y, Z reasons and just go there and exploit it. The second is uh, like, I don't know, like get rid of all your things, right? Like get rid of the things that you thought made you like happy that don't actually. And then the third is just to beat other people up. And I don't think either of those are, I mean, th those are all three of those things are like so polarized, right? Like all three of those things are like, I'm going to do this really exploitative thing. I'm going to like sell all of my possessions or I'm going to go beat up other people. And like, none of those things are like reasonable methods. Like, huh, maybe he should go see a therapist. Like, I don't, like, I don't know, like give, give him some healthy options here to like deal with his, uh, to deal with his problems. Right. Cause I don't think it ever offers any. So to go back to, a, I think a point that at least you and I were making, I, I don't, I can't remember, Jamie, you might've made it as well. It's just like this movie shows you a lot of problems in society and doesn't really give you any meaningful way to deal with them. And look, not every movie has to have like a, a message of support, but like when the problems you're identifying with society are like so surface level that like, like emasculated men can like do bad things it's just like it's not interesting like it's not an interesting critique at all of society and you haven't you haven't reached any like, sort of like emotional or like uh, theological like depth around like how to how to how to deal with these things yeah i mean and the movie so clearly wants to be saying something right and saying something meaningful to people that like you can't just let it off the hook because you know it maybe it, it doesn't say as much as it wants to like it it wants to be like a very profound experience, I think, and it's just not. Jay, Jay, what do you think about the toxic masculinity angle? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think you've you know you've said it. It doesn't you know what what is the point of like pointing all this out, right? Because there is no like resolution to it. There's no suggestion to it. Like you know it it it's almost it's it's almost pointless. You know, I don't I don't get anything out of you know you being told this there's not even any like scott like you said you know at the end you know there, there's no like aha moment of like i am coming to terms with my emotions i am having closure whatever it's no i'm gonna shoot myself hold in hands the face. with a woman yes and i'm gonna hold hands with a woman and that's gonna magically make me feel better solve my yeah. problems like i 
I'd be really curious to see what happens in like 15 minutes right after. Yeah, I, it just doesn't do anything, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with what y'all are saying. I, I think the only reason I feel that it's semi-works is just because I see, I still see this, like, I feel like, I mean, you know, not to be too political about it, but like, I feel like this idea that, you know, showing emotion or caring about other people, right, of like actually sympathizing or empathizing with somebody like Bob um, is like, you know, like the Trump versus non-Trump, like that's that's that debate being played out in a way, because I think people who support Trump look to him as like this ideal of masculinity, right? And like, if he's saying, don't wear a mask, then it's like, I shouldn't wear a mask because like, I don't want to be feminine, like caring about other people is, is, you know, feminine. And like, I, you know, I, I, uh, don't need to show emotion towards, like, I don't need to show that I care about other people, um, because I'm making my own way in the world. And, uh, you know, all I care about is myself or whatever. Like, I, I feel American like American exceptionalism at its finest. Yeah. But, but when, then when Trump like wears a mask, then ever, then all of these people are like, oh man, he looks so cool in his mask. Like this mask is awesome. Um, I'm gonna go buy a MAGA mask now or whatever because like they are looking to him as like again the the ideal of masculinity, um, which is just farcical. Um, but I guess I did get a little political there, but um, a little bit <laughs> off. But I think that no, but I just think that that idea is still still being played out right, and that's why we see like. Uh, that's that's why we see like such a stark difference between like you know the trump people people on trump side and and people uh against trump it's like it is almost a debate about like should you care about other people or not uh, and i think that like the gender as the gendered aspect of that is like is definitely part of that conversation like the, again the idea that like caring about other people has almost become um it's an weak. emasculating behavior. But um, so I, even though I, I don't think the movie goes deep enough or, you know, again, sa says enough about how we should combat it to, you know, to, to fully get off the hook. I do think there is something there um, that yeah. at, at least feels more relevant today than the, the other part of it that we were talking about. Yeah. And I do want to say that, like, we may be giving it a tough shake, like, in 1999, the like the public discourse on something like toxic masculinity, like I just don't know. I'm not yeah. familiar with that time. Like, it may be more profound to identify a problem of toxic masculinity then, much more I mean, so the than the president it is now. of the United States had just like used his office to, uh, you know, sleep with someone who is not his wife, and like people were like, "Hey, that's fine." So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that that was the understanding of toxic masculinity at the time, is what I mean. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like, look, I, I can't even speak to that, honestly. Like, that makes sense to me because I feel like this whole notion of like toxic masculinity is a is a very, I don't know, mil millennial thing to discuss. Right. It's like <laughs> I don't think it quite creeps into Gen X. But I think that so. So for that reason, it might be more profound to. So interestingly capture this like notion of toxic masculinity in a character that uh, on screen in such a in, in such a very like. I don't know, vibrant way, even if it doesn't necessarily feel realistic um, because it is a caricature of or an extreme of that notion. So we may be giving it a tough shake for that. And I want to be fair to it there. But yeah, I mean, now nowadays it doesn't hold up because the conversation has moved like three, four or five steps past that. It feels like at least in, in at least amongst our generation around that, like saying that toxic masculinity is a problem will just be like, uh huh. Yeah. Keep going. Uh -huh. <laughs>
Yeah, um, what do we so, do about it? Which yeah, it's, 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 it's a little like different. They're, they're behind on that. Like, yeah. I think, yeah, I, I think that's that's a fair point to bring up. Uh, just just acknowledging that this is a, a systemic problem would have been a, maybe a positive step at this time when the movie came out. Um, but, but but I think it under but that being said, I don't want to then just let it off the hook because then I think it undermines itself so much yeah. by just giving you all these different things that are like all so bad as like a response to it. Um and doesn't actually it'd be one thing if it just presented it and be like, this is what happens when this thing happens. But it's it, what it is, it's producing it's producing an extreme and it's giving you options to deal with it that are like also extreme and not and like you can't do and they're wrong. Right. So it's like it's not like I'm not really sure again what the point of it was right if the point was just to do this thing and to expose it why did the movie do what it did then um i guess that's kind of where i land yeah again it may be a, a, just an element that hasn't aged well but yeah. maybe moving away from the thematic um moments of the movie and just looking more at it uh as from a storytelling perspective and, and in particular the you know the concept of of norton as an unreliable narrator as this nameless figure and then of course the ultimate plot twist the the revelation that occurs in the last act of the movie that tyler durden is him um and you know it is just a figment of of his imagination what did you think about how you know did you think the unreliability of the narrator added anything to the storytelling did you think the twist was was clever and added anything to the the story uh telling uh scott we'll start with you yeah, look, I, I think it adds to an extent, right? Like, I think a lot of things that are happening and like who these characters are, like, it makes a lot more sense as a projection. So in that sense, it's a it's a twist in that one that I think you can see the breadcrumbs leading up to it. You can definitely see how you, know, you get from, you know, hint one, hint two, hint three, hint four to there. And I think that you can also and then it leads to it because it makes certain things make sense earlier on. Again, because I'm so negative on the story of the film, I'm not sure all those pieces coming together really matters all that much. But I just think from a, uh, like a device a perspective, like a, a story device, I think it works pretty well. Um, and also explains how like almost schizophrenic, like the relationship between him and Marla Singer. So Helena Bonham Carter's character like is in the film and how confusing it is. Um, again, I'm not sure that, you know, one plus one plus one plus one equals good in, in this situation. But I think that you can that it connects the dots well relative to the story it's being told. Yeah, I, th I think Scott said it well. I'll touch on the rewatch value of it, which was, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I didn't think the film itself had good rewatch value. I think the twist actually has like decent rewatch value, though. I definitely chuckled to myself a little bit, you know, and, you know, when I'm starting to pick up these breadcrumbs, um, you know, obviously knowing exactly where it's going, but, you know, kind of having a good laugh when the narrator says something like, you know, I know this because Tyler knows this, or, you know, Tyler's yeah. words coming out of my mouth, or when he's beating himself up in the office and goes, weirdly, I think back to my first fight with Tyler. And I'm like, that's because you're doing the same thing. Like, aha, so funny. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I definitely, I, I would say uh, in terms of the rewatch value, you know, the, the twist, you know, obviously not nearly as impactful, but, you know, fun to pick up the breadcrumbs along the way. Yeah, I, I, it's difficult for me to evaluate the twist because I've never watched this movie when I didn't know the twist. Like, the, I knew it from the very first time that I watched it. And so when I watch it now, like when I was watching it this time, I was like, this feels so obvious, right? Like the, all of the things that you're saying, right? The, the idea that, that Tyler comes to him and is like, do not talk to Helena Bonham Carter. Do not talk to Marla about me. Like, ne never mention me to her. Um, and 
so, like uh, some other things, like in a couple scenes, they like characters are looking at Edward Norton and they're, when they are like saying Tyler, when they're supposed to be talking to Tyler, they're like looking at him. Um, and, and I, so I, I, you know, just, just looking back at it, I feel like it's fairly obvious, but at the same time, right. The thing that we always talk about with plot twists, right. Is that a good plot twist is one where you don't see it when you watch it for the first time. But when you go back, you're like, Oh, how could I could have, how could I have missed this? Like it, it was all right there in front of me. Uh, but it's because of like the, you know, directors, you know, controlling the story. Like he, for, he turns your focus elsewhere so that you're not looking at these obvious signs or you're not thinking about them in the way that would lead you to the conclusion of the twist. Uh, and so maybe that actually, you know, maybe what I'm talking about actually shows that it was an effective twist because there, there were all these signs when you, when you go back and look at it, um, I just don't, I just can't really say because again, I haven't had a watch where I didn't know what the twist was. I, I think that would be the ultimate test of like, if I watched this for the first time, completely cold, would I be able to figure it out for myself? And it, if I was, which I kind of feel like I would be able to, then, um, then, you know, th then I don't think it would be that effective, but hindsight is twenty twenty, And so I, you know, there's, there's not much that I can really offer in terms of evaluating how, effective it is but right like it does make sense i just don't think it's like even even if you don't see it coming i feel like it's not like mind-blowing or anything like that like i i don't know i feel like people have made this out to be like one of the greatest plot twists in in movies and it just it doesn't yeah. it doesn't like get there for me because it just doesn't add that much to the story and I, I don't feel like it it doesn't it doesn't change i mean I guess it does change a lot of what you've been seeing so far, but just not in a way that really interests me. Jay, all right, you're on the hot seat. Are you dumb? And did, did you know this going? Did you were you were you able to figure it out going in the first watch? I'm not saying that you're I, dumb. Again, I'm saying I, I I don't know what it would be like on a first watch. I honestly could not tell you. Um, I mean, it was so many years ago. Yeah, it's I, I think it's something that I figured out maybe half an hour before the reveal, so not super early on, but not like you know tantalizingly close to the finish either. Um, I definitely was thinking about that, but yeah, I, I, uh, I couldn't tell you exactly when I landed there. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't think this is a reveal that's meant to be like, oh my goodness, how could you ever have like seen this coming the first time you watch it, right? Like I think that you in some ways, like at, at the very least, like you're having the same experience that Ed Norton's character is having and like Ed Norton is like figuring this out over the course of the film, right? Like he's starting to get closer and closer to that truth right and so i, I think that if it, you're not like it, i i would imagine that it's pretty hard to be finding out at the same time that ed norton finally has the realization right? like you're gonna start thinking that at the very least when he starts like when when tyler Durden just disappears like when he disappears from the film like i think that you start understanding like all right this isn't normal right like this isn't normal at all it's really weird and i think you're gonna you're gonna connect those dots before the reveal happens but I think that if you take like the first hour and a half of the film, like you're probably not thinking that Tyler, like if you haven't seen the film and you don't know the twist, like you're probably not thinking that Tyler Durden isn't real. But I think that before the reveal happens and like at like the two hour mark, I don't know when it happens. It's a long movie. Like the two hour mark, let's say it happens, the reveal happens. Like you're probably going to have figured, like started to figure it out between like the 90 minute mark and like the point of reveal. And I think that if that means it's not like a, it's not a, it's not a shocking twist in that sense. But narratively, I think it works like, well, it may not be interesting, right? Like it may not, it may not lead to anything interesting that you're worth considering here. And I think that's a fair critique. 
but I think it makes the movie make more sense. And it does make sense in the context of the film. It just may not be very interesting that it makes sense. Right. I, th I think that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, I, I don't know. It just, it doesn't work as well for me as something like, I don't know, the sixth sense. What's, what's another movie? Prestige. A good plot twist. What's another movie that has a good plot twist? I was waiting for my chance to bring that up. I yeah. talked about it uh, with my partner right before I came on. She was like, so are you going to bring up the prestige twist? And I was like, nope, I'm, I'm going to steer clear of that. But <laughs> here we are. Did she did she watch this movie with you? Because I'd be interested to know like a fem feminine perspective on this. Fight Club or the Prestige? Fight Club. No, she did not watch oh, it with okay. me. Uh, Wait, can we let's get let's get the, let's get let's get her in here. She, no. She's not in the apartment, but maybe let's not. Time. We're not relitigating the Prestige if that was what you had in mind. Um, no, can I ask her what she thought of Fight Club? I'm sure she's seen it. She has. I think it's been a while though. There's a French movie called Swimming Pool that has a really great plot twist, but that's the only little one that comes to mind immediately. But I think the last thing to talk about with this movie, and maybe there's not like much conversation to have around this, but just I, something I find interesting. And Scott, you kind of alluded to it earlier, talking about the financial, you know, gains of this movie compared to Joker. This movie was not was it was a box office flop, and um, there were a lot of Fincher was had a lot of uh, creative difficulty with uh the studio in, in making this movie they like they wanted him to do certain things that he didn't want to do and um they they felt they didn't really like like the finished product of the movie they felt like um it wasn't going to be or they, they didn't like parts of the movie like the graphic violence and stuff they felt like it wasn't going to appeal to people so they like wanted him to rework stuff and i think fincher probably uh, i think he feels like the movie was wrongly marketed uh, at the time and that was why uh, that or you know what what the studio the elements of the movie that the studios wanted that the studio wanted him to lean into and that they leaned into in the marketing of the movie was not really what the movie ended up being or being about and that was the result of why people didn't really respond to it didn't come out to see it it lost money in the u.s at least um but has become this incredible like cult classic again like one of the defining cult classics of the 90s um, and a movie that people still love and, and talk about as a, a masterpiece and have the posters up in their dorm rooms to these day to, to, to this day. Um, I don't know. Again, I don't know if there's much conversation to have here, but are, do you guys have any thoughts about maybe why the movie, uh, you know, achieves such a cult status and maybe even endures today as, you know, uh, a favorite and, a, you know, a, a famous film among Fincher's filmography? I think first off, I, I do want to just get this out of the way. Most films don't make their money back in the U.S. Like large budget, super like superhero comic movies. Most of them don't make birds of prey. When you look at the reputation that this film has garnered, though, like you, you, you it's surprising to learn right that it, it didn't um, garner that much money at the time. Especially when you look at Seven, right, the last movie we talked about, which like crushed at the box office and was also a you know disturbing, dark like crime-y like thriller in in a, in a similar way to this movie um you know it, it's it's interesting to see and maybe that was again some of the discontent between fincher and the studio but um i, I just wonder why was seven the film that people actually turned out to see and really liked at the time as opposed to fight club being the movie that people didn't appreciate at the time but maybe now has become like it has sat with people maybe even longer than seven has. Yeah, I, I think so. I think part of it is is like a, a content is a contextual thing, right? Like I think that 
it's an art like it's an r-rated film it's very violent like i think i think the reality is like parents cared more about things like that now like i'm sure a lot of people who weren't 18 went and saw joker with their parents with whatever right like it made a lot of it made a lot of money that way and i think that in 1999 i think that like I don't know. I mean, if, if I was born in, I don't know, 1985, like, I don't think my mom would have, like, taken me to watch this film, and I don't know if I would have been able to go see it. But how do you right. explain Seven, then, though? Like, that's that's kind of part of this, I think, the fact that it did do so well, at, despite being similar in a lot of the sure, but you're talking about. Yeah, so, I mean, like, one thing is that, like, look, Fight Club targets one audience. It's, like, middle-aged, like, te- teenage to middle-aged, like, men. Like, that is the only target audience of this film. Like, I don't know why, like many, like any other demographic would be interested in seeing this film. Like maybe, maybe that's my like biased judgment against it. I don't think, cause I don't think it's that fantastic of a movie, but like, like seven is not a four quadrant film, right? Cause it's not a family movie, obviously, but it's a movie that like, I don't know you, if you're into like kind of scary or like thriller type movies, like you'd go on a date to go watch. Like, can you imagine like going on a date to, to watch fight club? Like that, that's a terrible, it's like a terrible idea. Right. And, I think that seven has has a lot more rewatch value, not for well. Like, hold on, because you said seven wasn't that rewatchable last time. I have to. I have to point. I think that it's out. more rewatchable than Fight Club for sure. Okay. I think. I mean, Fight Club like makes you just want to like beat your head against a wall. I think. In, in I, some, I know in what you're saying, but like, I don't think seven is a great date movie either. If we're being honest. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like sure, maybe you go watch a comedy instead. Like, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, if you're interested in thrillers, right? Like, if you're interested in a mystery film, like you probably wa- like you you would want to go watch Seven. Like, if you're interested in watching toxic men do toxic things on screen, you'll go watch Fight Club. Like, it's just, like, it doesn't appeal to anyone. I think that's part of the marketing problem that you're talking about. Like, it doesn't know how to market the film, right? Like, last year, Warner Brothers marketed DC as an art house film, and it made a billion dollars. Like, maybe they should have marketed this movie as, like, an art house film, and it would have made more money. Like, maybe it would have. I mean, also, marketing is so different now than 20 years ago. It's obviously incredibly different, things like that. Like, how you reach out to those people and engage those people is just so... It's so much more nuanced now and you can target people better. Uh, Marketing is much more effective these days, I guess, is what I'm trying to say in that sense. And so I think that it really suffered from, one, you know, having controversial reviews, being as violent as it was, but then also just like not really having anything to to really get people to go see it. Like Brad Pitt, maybe like like this is the biggest thing he'd done since seven. Right. Like I don't I can't think of any maybe maybe there was something else in there right i can't i can't think of anything else that you know would have increased his notoriety since seven necessarily but like brad pitt again like not someone yet who'd really anchored movies and you know whether he's capable of it or not is a different discussion but like ed norton certain i don't think he's there like yeah american history x was right before this but like is ed norton gonna pull down you know a huge audience at this point i'm not sure um and and so i think the like the sum of all those parts is is something that like has a very niche target audience Hence how it's developed a cult classic over the years, right? It's like, I mean, it's like an anthem of uh, like a certain demographic, I think almost it feels like. And w- when you look at something like when you look at this comparison of Joker, like that movie is still a DC movie. Like it's a super recognizable, you know, villain, if not yeah. the most iconic villain of all time, uh, getting getting an origin story. Like, I mean, I think we said this last year, Scott, like if Joker is titled something else and it you know, doesn't, it doesn't have the DC banner on it, like, Nobody, no one gives a crap about the film. It's just like no one's gonna care about it at all. It's not like I, I really do believe that. I think the movie would have made like a fifth of what it made, yeah. and no one would have cared, and like no one would still be yeah, talking. No, about I, it. I definitely think I understand why Joker 
performed much better than, than Fight Club. You know, in hindsight, I wish we had asked Danny to be on for this episode because I would have loved to have gotten the female perspective on some of these things. Uh, I, I don't know. It, because I, on on Letterboxd, I follow several like female film critics and a lot of them have this movie rated like four stars or five stars. Like, And so I, I, just, I, wanted, I would like to know what they're seeing um, in the movie because like you're saying, like I, I think what you're saying makes sense of like, this feels like it is for one audience and one audience only, but I just don't think it gets to being a cult classic, the type of cult classic it is, unless people outside of that circle somehow find their way to this movie and are like, Hey, this actually speaks to me too, in some way. I, I don't know. Really? I mean, I think the whole definition of a cult classic, maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but like the whole definition of like cult status that a movie would get is based off a single demographic going, like going to bat for it. No, I, I, I don't, I don't think that that is how I would classify it, but I don't think we need to get into this disagreement right now on the, on the podcast. But Jay, sure. do you have any thoughts about this movie's status, uh, status as a cult classic or anything like that? Oh boy. Um, I, I, I'm also going to keep it more service level because I think when I talk to people about what they like, cause I feel like I did talk to a lot of people about this movie when I saw it. So, I mean, you know, take it with a grain of salt. This was a while ago and it was a, probably a, you know, a bunch of 14 to 16 year olds, but you know, the thing that really sticks out with it, right, is that it's just, it's really quotable for one thing. Like, you know, I mean, you know, we literally opened this podcast with, you know, that the incredibly famous line of, you know, we're going to break the first rule of Fight Club. And I don't know, like simple things like that. And kind of like with the movie, the movie like touches on this a little bit, right? Where it's like most people have like never been in a fight. We'll go to like great lengths to like, you know, not get into a fight. Yeah. And I don't know, just the idea of something like that as like, as like an, as something that, you know, is alluring to you. I don't know. Like I, I, you know, rather than like think of, you know, how this movie was marketed or not, you know, I, I think that, you know, the fact that it's quotable and the fact that, you know, it just, it touches on something as like simple and like drawing and is like fighting, I guess, you know, just makes it, you know, you know, it, it draws in like a, a very, uh, to me, a very specific demographic, you know, and, and falls into like that definition of like cult classic. Like to me, like, you know, it, it for the most part, I think has stayed in one demo, but again, I could be wrong about that. Yeah. I mean, that, and that would be my perception of, of watching it like that. I, I would think that this movie is not going to appeal to, I mean, even, even not to people like, cause we're within like the, the target demo in some ways for this movie, but I, I mean, we, we all seem to have rejected it. Um, so, but there, I just think that there, there's something that people are seeing and not necessarily one specific type of people in this movie. Uh, that people are seeing in this movie um, that is, you know, has drawn them to it. That is um, making them revisit it, quote the lines, like you said, Jay. Um, and I, I just don't know if there's, if I have a good explanation for that, but um, with that, I think that we can uh, kind of wrap up here. We, we've spent a lot of time <laughs> hating on um, this, this movie, but, uh, do you guys have a favorite scene or moment that you would like to highlight? Um, now I will go to Jay first. Sure. I think my favorite scene is when, uh, I think it's about halfway through the movie, uh, when fight clubs are like starting to gain popularity, well, just, just the one that they're in and, uh, the owner of like the bar or whatever, uh, of like the, of the basement, you know, comes down and is like, what are you all doing here? Like get out. And, you know, Brad Pitt, you know, essentially like, you know, uh, incites this guy into like beating him up and to make this comparison, like one last time, you know, he's giving a very like Joker-esque laugh while he's getting like beat up. Um, I, I thought that was uh, a really like uh, just awesome 
moment for Brad Pitt and his character, you know, as he's, you know, like getting beaten and bloodied and is, you know, like, you know, tell us, like, you know, we'll have the space, like, give us your word. He's just, he looks completely unhinged. And it's, I really enjoyed Brad Pitt uh, in that moment. I, maybe it's a lame answer, but I just like reading the rules of Fight Club. I think it's uh, just a really good scene. I think anytime you get these sort of like intros for like the start of the night or whatever, I think those are always uh, really, usually they have some, some decent humor uh, in it. And I think, uh, again, speaks to maybe the, the gravitas or charisma of Brad Pitt in those moments of really being, again, this like hyper male figure and, and getting the attention of, of these people. Um, I really like it when he's like, I see a lot of new faces tonight. That must mean a lot of you must be breaking the first rule and, and going, going into that spiel, I think is, is, a, is a really good moment. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I like you, Scott, I guess I never actually said this. I just don't find the film particularly enjoyable to watch. I mean, I said that about seven too, I suppose. Um, but in, in a way that doesn't leave me with too many favorite, like fond memories of a scene or a moment, but those, those lines are around fight club and the rules are, I think are, are good ones. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be giving this movie like a one or anything because I realize that there's like good filmmaking and stuff involved here. But it's hard to think of a favorite scene or moment from this movie, even though I acknowledge there is some good filmmaking in it. And I'm not going to be giving it like a one or anything when we do our scores here in a minute. But so I will just go with even though it doesn't make a lot of sense and I don't really understand the point of it. I think the final image is cool with the buildings growing up with the Pixie song playing like. I, again, I don't think that it signifies anything in the story or and it's just kind of a weird image, to be honest with you. But I think it is it shows Fincher's like filmmaking eye, right? Like that that he has an eye for a really interesting image. And I think that, that is an interesting image, even if it is ultimately saying nothing in a, in a different in a different film. Uh, it that could be a really impactful image, I think. And so I will go with that as an example of. Fincher as a filmmaker, which obviously I respect a lot. Um, you know, you just picked you just picked a fully visual effects scene. <laughs> basically, yeah, basically. Um, because I just don't think the story, or the dialogue, or characters are you know have are much to write home about. So, no, really, I, I just find it funny that it's like great filmmaking, full visual effects. <laughs> yeah, but he, I'm like, you know, he has a say in that. He has a say in how that he wants the image to look and everything. Definitely. It's yeah. it's not. Uh, just the VFX artist thing, but uh, okay. Scores, Jay, uh, 7.0, 6.5. Oh, so close. <laughs> you you guys, you guys got me scared. I, I feel it like I might be going to get like a five. You know, the last time we went this low, uh, just to make this callback, was Rise of Skywalker. What did you, what did you get that? I think it was like a 6.2. Okay, 6.2. I do think Rise of Skywalker is worse than this, so true, yeah. So do I. Natural film to compare it to now. Uh, Scott, so I gave Rise of Skywalker like a 3.0 or something like that. I don't even remember. Uh, 5.5. Well, Scott is obviously the shill for Fight Club then among all of us because he's coming out the highest. I'm going with a 4.7 on this movie. Um, Jay gave it a 6.5. How am I coming out the highest? <laughs> well, because we have to adjust for Jay's sliding scale. You oh, know, okay. If we were rating it on Jay's scale, it would probably be a lot lower, but... So Scott, Scott is the shill between the two of us, I guess. You could argue that he's the, he is between all three of us. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So a, a rare a rare clunker on the the countdown series with with Fight Club, but like I said, I think things are looking up from here uh, with with the you know rest of the films that we were getting to. You know, I I haven't seen some of them. Uh, 
you know, a, a couple of them, though. So I, I can't speak for that. And honestly, again, this is coming out after the game. So maybe we also hated the game and it's going to be like, uh, you know, it's maybe it's we'll quit halfway through. through. We're just like, oh, Finch is actually terrible. Director. Yeah, we're going to be like, dang, why did we do this series? But uh, <laughs> yeah. but we will see. I, I guess this could sound really funny once the context is provided, but we're going to get to the game eventually. But uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Fincher Countdown. Oh, one, um, one, thing, I think one thing interesting is that like, un- unlike nolan and i mean even part of star wars right where like george lucas wrote you know half the series right and chris nolan writes all but what one of his film one of his films except for insomnia like david fincher doesn't write any of his films Mm -hmm. and so i think it's a very different like we haven't talked about that yet and we'll see if we get to a point where we talk about that difference but um it's interesting to think about how yes of course he has directorial control and ultimately and some say in what actually gets shown on screen with the script etc things like that but he's not a you know, he's not he's not taking his own words and putting them onto a screen. And that's something that, again, we haven't talked about yet, but might be interesting at some point to talk about how that might differ from, you know, some of the Star Wars movies watching and certainly almost all the Nolan movies. Yeah. And he's also known like as a director, as being like a very like exacting person behind the, the camera. Like he's very sort of demanding about what he wants and he'll make you do a lot of takes and stuff to get it exactly right. Um, no chairs on set. He had, yeah, he has like a very specific vision for what he wants. So uh, I don't know if that's something we want to explore later too. But um, regardless, thank you for listening to this episode of the Fincher Countdown. Don't forget to check out all of our podcasts here in the Some Like It Scott podcast feed. Some Like It Scott, Champs Lunch, uh, rest of our Countdown series. Um, it, it, all here in the same feed on Spotify, I, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget about our Patreon as well, patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. You can support us over there. Um, Even if you can't, like, rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will uh, join us for the next episode of the Fincher Countdown, on which we will be uh, reviewing the 2002 home invasion thriller Panic Room. Uh, But until then, for Jay Habib and Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time.